Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Casey Patrick. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Joining me today is Brad Ward, one of our cardiac coordinators. Hello. And running the board is Kevin Crocker. Thanks, Kevin. Today, we're going to be talking about post-arrest care, specifically what happens when we get return of circulation in the field and, you know, what's our destination? What's, what's our, uh, you know, what's the end result with these patients? And specifically, I want to give you a couple cases to start with, Brad, and kind of think, think through these with me. I think it'll illustrate sort of the main point of what we're going to discuss today. Let's take a 42-year-old male, calls us with chest pain. We arrive. He's in his recliner. He's had pain for an hour, history of hypertension, diabetes. And the first thing we do, obviously, is? A 12 lead. And the 12, we're not going to make it hard today. This is going to be... I, I'm, I'm really hoping I get these right. People are listening. Low-hanging low fruit. We're going to have... Four millimeters of ST elevation in 2, 3, and F with reciprocal change. So what is our diagnosis? It's going to be an inferior MI, sir. That's a STEMI. There you go. So that's a, I groove that one down the middle and you hit it out of the park. I appreciate the low ball. So again, though, what is, what is the foundation? What is the disease process that's causing his presentation? And that is an occlusion of coronary artery. Let's not, let's, we're not even going to get anatomic here. He's got a coronary artery occlusion. We know that. So what do we do? cath lab we take him to the cath lab we run like mad we sound alarms we roll through the door and every ed's bells and whistles are going off the cath lab's already been activated from the field the you know the red carpet's rolled out and we're shooting for that door to door to balloon time right so let's let's do case two okay and i'm ready again it's going to be it's going to be a no curveballs, no sliders today. I don't this trust is going to be right down the middle. We got a 50-year-old mm -hmm. lady. She's working out at the YMCA. Okay. And she collapses after she gets off the treadmill. Oh, no. So the YMCA staff, who are well-trained, and the AED is out in the lobby, do exactly what they're supposed to do in okay. their CPR training. And they, in the process of starting compressions and calling 911, they slap on the AED, and the AED says, shock. Ooh. So, patient shocked, circulation is returned, we get a perfusing rhythm back, we arrive at about that time, so what do we do then? First thing we do is get our own 12 lead. We get our own 12 lead, and the 12 lead is nonspecific, there's some ST depression, no clear ST elevation MI, what is the root cause, what's the foundation, what's causing her disease, her big problem that day? Everything points to that was a cardiac event right that was a then. Cardiac event, right? We got a we got a shockable rhythm. We've got, you know, an otherwise functional young woman who goes down in arrest. It's it's a cardiac event. So is there really any difference in the etiology for patient one and patient two? It sounds about like the only difference is the EKG itself. And the and obviously the, the severity, you know, with with the clear arrest, but What's going on to cause both of their events is the, is the same. Now, what happens with patient two when we get to the hospital? She goes to a room. She goes. And she gets a lot of tests run. Does she go straight to the cath lab? Absolutely not. Should she go straight to the cath lab? Absolutely, yes. So that is, again, that, that's the, you are batting a thousand today. Thank you. That I, is, that I, is, I feel good about it. That is the foundation of our talk today because I think we see these patients come through the department and we take the awake gentleman like Mach 5 to the cath lab and the lady post arrest who probably needs 
revascularization, if you can rate it more than case one, may go, she may not, in due time. Um, so we all, you know, if her EKG were to show STEMI, what would happen to her? Treated just like any other STEMI. So in the end, I think we're really talking about the difference in STEMI and ACS. And we all know that all ACS isn't STEMI. So if we call it a cardiac arrest, why don't we assume that it's cardiac and etiology and take those patients straight to the lab? And I think we don't do it because it's just not been general practice. I think the evidence is stacking up, though, to make it pretty darn obvious that that's what these patients should get. I mean, we had a smoking gun when we got the STEMI. Everybody was excited about that, that we have a STEMI. We have the capability of, of, of pulling the trigger 100% saying this is a cardiac event. I have the proof. But ACS with no ST elevation can still be deadly. Absolutely. And in the situation of post-cardiac arrest. Where again, it just killed someone. It just killed someone. And we called it cardiac arrest. So, you know, again, we want to target true cardiac arrest. And we want to be stewards of resources. Obviously, you know, 15, 10, 20 years ago, when we started activating STEMIs from the field, pre-hospital setting, you know, the big concern was I don't want to get called in for these guys and girls who can't read an EKG. And we clearly can have proven and can read EKGs, read them correctly, and get patients directed to the proper care quicker. We've proven that. So in this situation, it's really not, a, it's not even involving a specific EKG read. I mean, if it's a STEMI, we're going to call it and the patients are going to go. This really is more of making sure we target true cardiac arrest. And in my mind, that's even easier than reading the EKG. How do we, how are some ways that we kind of weed out the arrest that may not be true coronary artery cardiac, you know, occlusive arrest? So we can talk to the people around us and, and ask what was happening, if they saw it, if they know anything about the patient, and if they report a history of recent intravenous drug use, that's probably going to point me not towards cardiac. So yeah, tox. What about, um, you know, what about feudal care? Obviously, what if the patient's, you know, 92 in a nursing home? And has a DNR or has any advanced directives or has terminal illness. Right. So, yeah, terminal cancer um, is one that probably, you know, not going to benefit from this. Um, you know, there's so many other medical problems and comorbidities that could be contributing. And what we're saying is these people still get transported clearly to the hospital and taken care of and treated, just not a candidate for the immediate cath, correct? Absolutely. And I think as we talk through this, hopefully we'll say it more than once, but the foundations of post-arrest care are the same for any arrest. We are really trying to tease out the ones that are acute cardiac arrests with a clear cardiac cause with not tons of other comorbidities. Again, in the tox, from this, you know, tox OD standpoint, renal failure patients, again, are another that, that, you know, can be electrolyte related, obviously hyperkalemia being the big one there. We're not talking about septic patients because they don't need a catheterization. They need volume resuscitation, pressors, antibiotics. Okay, uh, an occlusion of your RCA is not going to give you sepsis? It's not. If, if you balloon your RCA in a, in a patient that's got bacteremia, it's probably not going to cure their disease, no. And again, obviously not traumatic, you know, whether that's bleeding or asphyxia or drowning. Again, we need to fix their bleeding. We need to fix their oxygenation. We need to fix their lungs um, in those cases. So what's, what's the evidence? Again, me personally, um, this wasn't a standard treatment or a standard thought process, you know, even just out of residency 10, 11 years ago. Um, but in 2015, um, AHA, ACC released cardiac arrest guidelines um, that, again, if you want to throw stones, drew on observational studies. But some of the, the most salient points from that document 
Uh, first off, a quarter of post-ROSC patients will have acute occlusion, acute coronary occlusion, regardless of EKG findings. So we know that if you have a cardiac arrest patient, one out of four, if you get ROSC, they're going to have an, an acute coronary occlusion. So your odds are already starting to creep up. Um, 60% of those will have significant coronary disease. So obstructive versus occlusive being being the, uh, you know, sort of the, the verbiage different there difference there. But again, a quarter are going to have acute occlusion. 60% are going to have significant obstructive CAD. So we know from that, you know, from these, you know, from these observational studies that a lot of these patients are going to have a cardiac cause. Um, the study in that group that looked at mortality and neurologic outcomes specifically was a study done by Hollenbeck, and it was a little more, little more detail-oriented, um, and they showed improved mortality and improved neurologic outcomes with earlier catheterization. So I think that, you know, pushes us toward, well, why can't they be cath the next day or why can't they be cath in two days? Um, I think for the same reason that case one, the 42-year-old, is not cath. You don't wait to cath your semis. Revascularization earlier is going to be is going to be better in these folks or at least that's what uh, the evidence is leading us towards and yes the Hollenbeck study has its faults it's retrospective Uh, you know that's um, you know I don't think you're going to design a a prospective randomized double bonded study here that's going to answer this definitively but I think it sure leads us Um, and you know there may be an element of therapeutic momentum and you know we like that term here at MCHD, uh, I think it's it's pretty useful in this situation. If you look at the Hollenbach numbers, you know, they saw improved neural outcomes in those who got cath and did not get PCI. So, so surrounding people, the sickest of people, even if they didn't get an occlusion, the sickest of people surrounded by your most aggressive teams leads to better outcomes as well? Absolutely. Uh, that sums it up. I, I don't have anything to add there. Um, and I really, I don't like to read things, um, but I think the uh, AHA paper, uh, this was in quotations, so I'm going I'm to read it. I think it kind of sums it up. EKG characteristics are poor predictors of acutely occluded vessels, and coronary angiography should remain the gold standard for identification of culprit arteries. I think it's almost comical that that was written in the paper, because we know that, right? We know that STEMIs are just a subset of patients with acute coronary syndrome. And I think these cardiac arrest patients fall right in there. Some of them may show STEMI, some may not. And the gold standard is going to be angiography. So if we've already talked about who who we should take to the cath lab, how do we determine on scene, in transport, at that moment to call this alert? Who are we? Who exactly are we taking? Again, if you want to look at the 2015 AHA guidelines, they dive into this pretty deeply. But I think, you know, again, we have to pick the right subset. And from a pre-hospital standpoint, it can't be overly onerous and it can't be overly lab intensive or it's not going to be useful for us in the field. So I think, the you know, again, the first place to start is they've got to have ROSC and that ROSC has to be sustained. So this isn't yet for the patient who has ROSC for two minutes and we lose a pulse and we push some epi, and we get a pulse back, and then we lose a pulse, and then we get a pulse. That person needs obvious intensive management once they get to the ED, but we don't want to activate the cath lab until we've proven that circulation is regained. Now, again, is there a role for cath in CPR patients? Maybe, but again, we don't want to go too far down that road yet. We're starting with just getting getting you know the, the ROSC patients there. 
So ROS greater than five minutes, um, less you know less than thirty minutes CPR I think is reasonable. Prolonged resuscitative efforts again point towards you know poorer outcomes. Again, we want to be wise stewards of our resources. There's a discussion in the AHA guidelines and in some of the uh, write-ups surrounding this this literature about age. I think again. An age cutoff is reasonable from a pre-hospital standpoint. Uh, I think, you know, the decision to take an 85-year-old and activate the cath lab is probably better made with a little more information than we have on the street. Not that an 85-year-old who's highly functional may not benefit from an early cath. Um, I don't know that patient would benefit from a field activation. I think that might be a little bit a little bit presumptuous with, with the minimal information that we're going to have on the street. Um, again, terminal illness is going to be an obvious one. If we've got a terminal illness, uh, it's not a wise use of resources. Again, not that the patient, like you said before, Brad, not that the patient's not going to be cared for, but we're not going to activate the cath lab. Again, alternative diagnosis, non-cardiac, again, fever, toxidrome, overdose, um, end-stage renal disease, those are so highly likely going to be electrolyte-related, you know, nursing home patients, extended care facility patients, memory home patients, um, I think, uh, are ones that, again, can be activated once we get to the hospital, but I don't think we're going to activate those from a pre-hospital setting. Um, the final portion of the AHA guidelines that I just want to touch on briefly is, is lab values, lactate, renal function, those, you know, do those rule somebody in, do they rule somebody out? And I really feel like if you took a, a super sick cardiogenic shock patient with a STEMI and you check their lactate and their creatinine, it's going to be through the roof. But we cat those people emergently if they have a STEMI. So I think in the, in the standpoint of a post-arrest patient, I don't think any of those numbers are going to rule us out. So of, no one's going to say your creatinine is high, your STEMI doesn't matter? I don't think anyone says your creatinine is high, so your STEMI doesn't matter. So in, from that standpoint, they shouldn't say your lactate is high, so your post-arrest urgent cath doesn't matter. That makes sense. Um, and again, my, you know, our reading of the literature, you know, after discussing it with our hospital partners, you know, we've come up with a, with a plan here at MCHD. Again, none of these are set in stone and there's different variations you could take here. We tried to pick what would work best for us. Tell us about where we're going to head, what direction we're going to go, Brad. Well, there was a lot of discussion and we had to figure out something that was going to work well in our system. And so we took the advice of local experts that are going to be treating these patients anyway and the, all, the, all the literature we could find. And we kind of came up with our inclusion, exclusion categories and nailed down to what we thought was the was aggressive enough to make a difference, but conservative enough to really exercise caution. Um, we decided that the alert we're giving, just like a STEMI alert, just like a trauma alert, just like a sepsis alert, we're saying this is Medic 14. I have a ROSC cath activation, which lets them know ROSC cath activation. That's the verbiage. I, I don't think that there's any way that that can be confusing. I think it says exactly what we're doing. Again, if this, you know, this is this is after discussion with all of our cardiology receiving partners and uh, discussion amongst uh, the clinical staff and the medical directors. Obviously, if this ends up being confusing, we'll have to revisit it and change it. But I think at this point, it's the, the fewest words to describe exactly what we have. I think that makes the most sense. So how are we going to include and, and exclude? We've talked about, we've talked about some of the, the big, uh, you know, big sort of subgroups here that are in and out. What, how exactly is our protocol going to read, Brad? So you just hit our, one of the big ones was um, 
Rosk of over than five minutes, greater than five minutes. And it's a five minute sustained, not a one minute here, three minutes there, and then another minute there. That doesn't count. So five minutes of uninterrupted Rosk and then less than 30 minutes of CPR until that ROSC occurred. We went with an upper age limit versus a lower age limit. We went with 80, 80, because we figured there are plenty of 70-year-olds and 75-year-olds that get cathed just fine, that live independent lives, that have a good yeah, potential for outcome. But those 80-year-olds have to also not have the next two bullet points, and those are? No end-stage renal disease and no extended care facilities. Yeah, no terminal diagnosis. So again, it's going to have to be a healthy 79-year-old, right? And then a couple that the uh, our hospital partners wanted to add in that we didn't have initially, but we decided were totally reasonable, our final two. Yeah, they wanted to get febrile patients out of there to rule out sepsis as best we can. Um, I think a febrile has to be taken with the tiniest of grains of salt because if they suffered their cardiac arrest in a hot parking lot in Texas sun, they might be warm. But if you're found somewhere in your living room where it's reasonable, you'd be normothermic and we find you hyperthermic, that's, that's an indication to not go ahead with the cath. And then finally? No drowning, no trauma, no asphyxiation. And again, those two final bullet points really go back with what you discussed at the beginning, Brad, and that is you know, our surrounding situation. Our information from our bystanders, our family members, you know, has the patient been sick? Do they have, I was just in the hospital for a urinary tract infection. Um, That's super important if you just yeah. died. If I'm on the beach at, you know, rolled up from the boat at, at Lake Conroe, you know, there's other situational things that would, would probably point us to drowning, trauma, asphyxiation, and really sepsis. Um, and then finally, I think, you know, to just reiterate, ROSC greater than five minutes, sustained, um, less than 30 minutes of resuscitative efforts, age less than 80, no end-stage renal disease. So if you see a shunt or you see a dialysis catheter, you're out for this, this alert. No nursing home terminal diagnosis patients, afebrile, and no drowning, drowning trauma or asphyxiation. And if they check all those boxes or, you know, inclusion, exclusion there, check or don't check, um, they're going to end up getting ROSC cath activation. But after that, you should still treat them like you would other ROSC patients. Don't forget that. Don't forget our post-arrest care, right? Lung protective vent settings, vasopressors have indicated, um, targeted temperature management. Again, AHA removed this recommendation due to volume overload concerns. But I really feel like, and again, we've had uh, quite the debate over the exact temperature that the patients need to be cooled to. Uh, I do feel like, though, there's a benefit of therapeutic momentum from the standpoint of us starting temperature management to, to pass that on in our receiving emergency departments. And I don't feel like we have transport times here at MCHD that are uh, long to the point that we're going to volume overload anyone. So I think starting cold saline in these folks is reasonable in our setting, again, if you're out in, uh, you know, West Texas and you have two-hour transport times, you probably don't want to bolus cold fluids the entire transport. But here, when our transport times are 15, 20, 10 minutes, I think uh, it's reasonable for us to do that, and we're going to keep that in our protocol. So let's wrap things up, um, kind of summarize. Early cath is beneficial in certain post-ROSC, post-arrest patients, regardless of ECG findings. Um, we know that ECGs are poor predictors of occluded coronary vessels. 25% of post-cardiac arrest patients are going to have an occluded coronary vessel. We have to choose wisely. Um, let's go back. ROSC greater than five minutes, less than 30 minutes of resuscitation, age less than 80, no end-stage renal disease, nursing home patients, terminal diagnoses, afebrile, 
and no drowning, trauma, or asphyxiation. And again, this is all an activation from the field. This is not, we're not marching in with our guns ablazing to take over the cath lab here, right? The emergency department, the cardiologists can always pump the brakes, uh, but we, we want to pick wisely. We want to get these patients the correct care as quickly as we can. And we don't want to forget the other aspects of post-arrest care that are going to go into taking care of all of these patients. So thanks, Brad, for joining me today. For those of you MCHD listeners out there, you'll be hearing more about this as we move forward. Um, if you have questions or concerns, as always, send them our way, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.